everyone collectively is going through this. You know, when, you know, we had 9-11, we were going through it. When Japan had their 3-11 or they had their tsunami, they were going through it. You know, when Australia had their fires, they were going through it. But we're now all going through this insanity as a collective. And it's just so mind-blowing to me. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Lisa, we're just so thrilled to have you uh, on Great Minds. And uh, I know for the last roughly two years, you've had the post as chief marketing officer and IBM client advocate uh, in Japan. Uh, but I would love to go back to sort of the beginning of your career. So, all right. So I think I have to start a little earlier um, with respect to kind of my really crazy career path. Um, so I was born in Japan, so made in Japan, right? And I spent the first around 10 years of my life in Japan. And I'm, I guess what they call the proper tag is a third culture kid. So it's actually a thing. And, um, you, if you're, uh, if you grew up in a culture that isn't part of your home culture. So my dad's from New York and my, um, my parents, uh, my mom is Canadian. My dad's from Brooklyn. So, uh, um, I'm an American by, 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 uh, I guess by nationality, but had, was born in Japan, which is great. Um, and then, so that kind of gave me this, um, whether it's a wanderlust or it just gave me this confidence and this ability to kind of be kind of the odd woman out, so to speak. I'm, I'm always, I've been the new kid a lot. I've moved around a ton as a child. Um, so always was the new kid, always got put into these situations where you had to, uh, show up alone and, um, and make the best of it and make friends. Um, not easy when you're a kid in high school, for example, or even in elementary school, but it taught me this ability, this skill, um, to be able to walk into any new situation and kind of figure out how to make it work. Cause I have the proof that I've been able to do it in the past. Right. So it gave me that confidence. So, um, um, for all intents and purposes, landed in California in high school, um, went to university in California as well. Uh, and then, uh, decided to, um, move, pick up my dad and I got in my car, moved, um, across the country after, uh, three incredible first job years at Hewlett Packard company in California. Um, and, um, moved to Boston. I was a little too nervous to move to New York on my own. Um, I had family there and, um, started working, um, for a PR agency because I started my career in public relations. Um, but then one day I got this phone call, uh, just it's a call that you really can't say no to. 
where um, I was offered to come to IBM in Paris to run advertising for the ThinkPad brand. Ooh, an IBM ThinkPad. See, now this is what it's like to fly first class. And that started this, this kind of this rolling thunder or this, this theme of, of this idea of things that I tend to, you've heard of uh, uh, leap before you look, right? I tend to look before, uh, look before you leap. I tend to leap before I look. So I just, I just kind of jumped into it. I didn't speak French. I didn't know the job. I was running ThinkPad advertising for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I came from a public relations background, and I didn't know anybody, right? And not to reveal my age, but more like we barely had instant AOL Instant Messenger at the time. So you were kind of you were really alone. So kind of did that, you know, proved myself. Uh, I think that's the beginning of this idea that I feel I'm a little battle tested or battle proven from that perspective. And then that continued on to, you know, after moving to France, not speaking French, learning French, figuring it out, moving to New York was kind of a no brainer. It was very easy. And I, I loved it in around uh, 2000, uh, 2001, very interesting time to move to New York and move to New York. Um, then just to fast forward it, then I got an opportunity to, uh, move to Shanghai, China, uh, to run a piece of our brand marketing for a piece of our business. Again, I leaped before I looked and just kind of went for it. Uh, and then I had another great opportunity to move to the UK. And then finally I had this amazing opportunity to, uh, move to Japan to, uh, be the CMO and, uh, NPS champion or client advocate for IBM there. So that was kind of my, my my career trajectory, career path. And having heard you speak more recently, I know that a lot of what you talk about revolves around that sort of triumvirate of leveraging the power of data and focusing on the clients and focusing on outcomes, the overall speed of digital. Going back then, we all used to subscribe to what was known as Moore's Law, did you ever imagine then that the pace of change would make Moore's Law look like a, you know, a very slow horse, you know, walking down a very slow racetrack? Yeah. You know, um, I've been in tech my entire career, right? So, um, so the only thing you can count on in tech is that something will change. And if you, if you can't get comfortable with that change, then tech is not the place for you. So even from working at HP, you know, in the 90s through to uh, working with Compaq and then IBM, um, I've just, uh, the, the thing that um, I, I think about a lot is like, what is the superpower one has to have, I had, whatever, is this idea of loving to learn and being comfortable with learning. And I really like learning on the ground, like I said. Um, so as long as I was kind of nurturing that desire to learn something new, um, whether it was moving at a warp speed um, or not, um, it, it was kind of irrelevant for me because as long as I was kind of uh, like like a Pac-Man, I, I, I find I like kind of eating up um, and learning new experiences and new skills. So for me, it was, you know, the more, the more it moved, the more it changed, the better because I could kind of uh, rely on that skill to help me adapt. And then going to Weber Shanwick in, in Boston, 
What was that experience like? You were, you know, sort of at the big company, you were the client at HP, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden you're on the service side. How, how did that transition go for yeah, you? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I haven't thought of it from that perspective. So, so yes. Um, so uh, culturally, it was a it was mind blowing for me. So I worked. I was the youngest one. I was, you know, I graduated what 20, 20, 21 from high school from college, and um, then I uh, worked in a headquarters where all the folks were much older than me. Right? I mean, they took care of me like I was their child, but and they taught me more than I could ever imagine, and they were so gracious with their time. But then I moved to an agency environment, and it was so exciting. I was with people my own age, um, and I was thrown into, you know like doing really big, big things. I wasn't the apprentice to this person or the second to that. Um, and you know, I, they hired me, um, to work on the compact business because of my HP experience, um, in-house, especially given that I worked on their printers and compact was just about to launch their printer business. So, um, I don't know. I felt I was able to add a ton of value. Also, I liked, um, working on different accounts as well, right? That, that was fun and exciting. It kept me fresh and I was able to kind of bring some good ideas from, well, whether I was working on a software piece of business, whether I was to back to HP from a hardware standpoint, um, like a laptop standpoint, for example. So, uh, so yeah, I, I loved it more culturally. It was culturally different than it was. Um, the work was, was, a little more similar and more, I was in my comfort zone uh, when I was at HP. And the IBM that you joined, give or take 1996, that was a vastly different company to what IBM is today in 2020. Talk about what IBM was like at that time, ThinkPad and, you know, it was a whole, really a whole different company. This is an experimental computer system that recognizes what I say. I talk and my words appear on the computer screen. This computer system is another example of innovation at IBM. In fact, it's the most advanced voice recognition system of its kind, period. The values of IBM from when it started about 109 years ago, um, has been consistent all the way through, right? You know, respect for the individual, you know, really driving uh, for our clients. Um, so that hasn't changed. So as long as you have that thread and uh, that um, the foundation, um, you know, whatever happens in the world, um, you know, it doesn't really matter because it's you have that as your 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 grounding element, right? But then, you know, as you said, you know, I was in the B two C business back then, right? So I was able, I was running advertising for the ThinkPad brand. We were selling it to not only businesses but to consumers. Um, and IBM has gone through so many transformations from uh, entering the PC business to exiting the PC business, um, and um, and throughout it all, I think it goes back to this idea of, you know, catch the wave, like make the move, get a, exit the business, get into new ones. You know, I lived through the, bringing um, the the acquisition of PWZC that really um, uh, drove us into the consulting business beyond the business consulting group that we had at IBM. So we started to shift from a hardware business to a services business, and you just got to be comfortable with constantly learning the new stuff and uh, being creative on how to help the the 
the world or clients understand the value you add that's better than the guy or gal next to you. IBM is unique in that the company has transformed itself before our very eyes over the last, let's round it out to 20 years. There are an awful lot of companies who were around when, about the same time we both started our careers, who are no longer here. What was it about IBM, and maybe you've already answered me going back to sort of those founding values, but what was it about IBM and what is it about IBM that enables it to navigate change and reemerge time and time again even stronger, whereas for so many companies that were big in the early 90s that are just completely gone and did not survive? Yeah. Um, all right. That's a... That's, that's- that's a really interesting one. Well, I, it, it starts with the values, right? And if you're always focusing on your clients, um, and we learned that the hard way, right? Um, when uh, before Lou Gerstner came in, right? We were almost broken up, and what, what we were called like break up, broken up into the baby bells. And then Lou, Lou came in and he pulled us back together and found that at that time we got a little too insular in our thinking and a little to focused on what was happening inside of IBM versus really focusing on the clients. So having learned from that, um, as long as you kind of understand what your clients needs, and I think we've kept to that since then, um, that's number one. Uh, number two, we run a portfolio of businesses, right? So when, while some people think, you know, it's not great to have a company that, you know, it's that one throat to choke because, you know, we run everything from hardware to software to services, um, we do have the luxury of that portfolio when one part of the portfolio is uh, not doing as well or we're about to exit it. You have another part of the portfolio, like our mainframe business, for example, that runs what world's largest banks for, um, you know, so lots of mission, mission critical stuff that they run. They kind of keep the engine going and keep the engine afloat, I would say. So you kind of add that diverse portfolio that, that keeps us going. Um, and then just our willingness even though we're large to transform, right? If you have that willingness and the desire to transform and you understand the need to transform, um, then I think that plays in your favor as we now are transforming to, um, you know, a cloud business, cloud and cognitive business um, as we go through our drive into the public cloud and the hybrid cloud. So, so that's kind of our next current and next bastion that we kind of are going for as we continue our transformation hopefully to be a 200-year-old company. And you're an outlier, I think, in sort of two ways. One is that you've been at the same company for quite some time. You've had a terrific run in, a, in the midst of a terrific run. Uh, and you've also lived in some of the world's great cities, most important cities, both business-wise culturally, Paris, you spent almost four years in Shanghai, Tokyo. Talk about the cultural differences, both living and from a business vantage point in the variants, Paris, New York, Shanghai, Tokyo in particular. Yeah, you know, okay, so the one common thing that I took from all of it is humility from my perspective, right? This, the humility of working with brilliant people, um, who live in their own countries and speak their own languages, but have all chosen to work for IBM and our business language is English, right? At least internally. Obviously, we speak the local language with our clients. 
So their ability to to add value, articulate themselves in a language that's not their own. And then in some instances, when I was in Shanghai, for example, and I worked in a growth markets unit, and I worked with countries in Saudi Arabia and countries um, in um, in Latin America, and they have these people who who come to work every day, and whether it's um, uh, they're up against different odds, they're still having the passion to do whatever they do. Um, I do think that there are cultural stereotypes for a bit of a reason. Um, so when you work with the French versus the Germans, or maybe when you work with the the happy countries that have this beautiful weather, and then maybe work with countries that are more north, um, there's just different characteristics and different personalities and different things that motivate them. I've learned that when I work with the Dutch or the Israelis, um, or even the four Nordic countries, um, they kind of are, they test you, right? They test your resolve, um, before they kind of take the, the project that you would like to work on with them and bring it to closure. Um, there's some that like you to kind of lay it out all for them. And there's some that just say, you know what, tell us what you want at the end game and we'll get, get it there. Don't tell us how to do it at all. So, you just have to feel those nuances. You have to listen. You know, I love that phrase. You have two ears and one mouth. Use it proportionately. So the more you listen, um, the better you are at working with the people in these different cultures. And you've also risen pretty high up the ladder um, in a culture in Japan in particular, which has a reputation as not being all that friendly to women in business. Can you talk about that a little? During his five years in power, one of Abe's top economic goals has been to expand Japan's workforce and increase productivity by seeing more women employed. The approach has become known as womenomics. IBM has a very, very strong diversity and inclusion culture, um, irrespective if you're in a country like Japan even. Um, I think the leaders, the GMs, the CEOs that they put in place in those markets are very evolved. Um, my current boss, Yamaguchi-san, is very, very open to having a very diverse uh, leadership team um, and brings women forward. Uh, I would say IBM has won one of the awards from the Nikkei, which is the largest newspaper in Japan, as uh, the, the number three company in Japan for the advancements of women and the number one company in Japan for the advancement of executive females. So, um, I think uh, the values that IBM drives in a market and where they hire um, uh, forward thinkers to be able to bring women forward and not only bring them forward and put them in these positions, but then really ask them to sit at the table and participate with um, everybody else around that table, not just be a figurehead to, to hit a quota, so to speak, right? Right. Yeah. We had a great keynote a couple of years ago at Advertising Week Asia uh, who was running Shiseido at the time. Mm. And he talked to... Uotani-san? Yes, it was. Yeah. And he, I think we had Paul Yanamine from IBM that same year, in fact. And uh, he talked at length about how Japanese culture in so many ways was holding back Japanese business. And he showed a picture of the average Japanese company's <laughs> board of directors, mm. which was all, you know, old white men. You know, old men with white hair, I should say. And then he showed a picture of his board. And, you know, there were women, there were people of color, and it was more reflective of the world as it really is. And he said that has been absolutely critical 
in their success. And Shiseido is, you know, one of the bigger players in that genre in the world. So uh, good for IBM Japan for understanding that. Yeah. And I think it's not just, you know, doing it for doing good sake, right? I mean, the most untapped, incredible, valuable resource in Japan, in my opinion, are women and the women workforce, right? Um, they are smart and they're, they're incredibly capable and um, they uh, want to, mo- many of them want to engage and helping them engage um, back in the workforce or in the workforce for the first time, whether once they have a, had a baby, for example, is the job of all of us to help them, you know, get back into it um, so they can um, run the balance between a happy family life and a very robust uh, career as well. So, you know, I think you and I've talked about Kathy Matsui is a great advocate um, from Goldman Sachs on really tapping into that, that, that untapped resource to uh, help Japan, you know, uh, really focus on getting, you know, all, all engines firing to be able to deliver what Japan needs to to be competitive on the global scale. Well, listen, I, I think you want to go into battle with all your soldiers on, you know, in on the, the battlefield. Right. Yeah. And if you're, you know, 50% or less, you know, you've created an artificially low ceiling for yourself. Yeah. So <laughs> great. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what you're, what you're doing now. I mean, not literally now in this Corona age where we're all, you know, adjusting and, you know, all of our lives are different, but let's talk about, you know, your primary focus. And I know you are a huge believer in uh, leveraging the power of data and how that can help drive and transform results. So give us a little glimpse into the the current state of what's hot on your plate. Yeah, well, you know, I can't, I can't kind of say the current state of what's hot on my plate without talking about um, what's happening in the world right now, right? So, so, so as part of kind of my job is the, half of my job is the CMO of IBM Japan is really to establish us as um, uh, essential to the country of Japan and to the businesses in Japan, right? So, um, so how do you do that when you ha- no longer have really any touch points to the world anymore? We used to have. Um, uh, think pads. We used to have typewriters. We used to have all these things that someone could touch and feel. And and now um, you're looking at her, right? You're talking to her. Um, I am the touch point. I am the IBMer that is the touch point to the world. So how do you establish IBM as a brand in Japan, of course, globally as well, but my job is Japan, um, without uh, having a a search bar that you look at every day or having a uh, online platform, for example, right? Online selling platform. So, so um, I've been very, very busy with my team uh, focusing on um, how do we help clients through this crazy, you know, kind of COVID time, right? Um, so looking at the other half of my job where I'm the net promoter score or the client advocate, we've been doing a lot of work on um, listening to what our clients are struggling with and really um, showing them that we're here to help them with everything from, you know, is your supply chain disrupted all the way through to how do you manage a local remote work? How do you manage a remote workforce to cyber, right? So what's happening with everything that's going on um, um, with respect to us working remotely and how secure is your data uh, through to business continuity, right? You got to just keep that business going. And, and what, 
I get really excited about is not only obviously we'll be there for our clients now, um, but you know, how can we help them transform themselves coming out of this into a different company, right? Because everyone's going to be different. Society's going to be different. Governments are going to be different and businesses are going to be different, right? So I'm really, you know, from the perspective of, of making sure we're ready in Japan um, to deliver upon that. Um, and we've been doing a ton of work just today. We launched the Japanese website for that to doing something a little fun. I think IBM's working with, uh, made a very generous donation to the World Health Organization. And uh, we're part of this, the Lady Gaga concert that's happening in April. Um, so really kind of um, translating that in Japanese and, and letting the Japanese um, community clients, whatever, participate and however they want to in that as well. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do, um, and from my night shift, the night shift that I'm working here in New yeah, York. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, you you have been unusual hours, that's for sure. Indeed. So, so it's almost like you're sort of holding people's hands and trying to comfort them, guide them through, and that when the corona fog lifts, help them be successful once again. Yeah, that's you know that's that's what we're gonna do. That's what we've been doing. The first phone call is, "Are you okay?" right? Literally with our clients, are you okay? What can we help you with? I mean, I've heard these amazing stories of, of like in China, for example, sometimes they don't need a mainframe right now. They need masks or whatever. And IBM has been able to help them source masks. And then from there, you know, if they need something to help them with business resiliency and continuity, as they try and run these multinational businesses from home, um, you know, that's, we, we, we dip into that to hold their hands, um, um, but before all of that, it's the, hey, are you okay? What can we do to help? Let, let's talk about something we, we uh, glossed over your tenure, also running IBM in the UK and Ireland. So a, a few months ago, Brexit was a real big issue over there and, and the positioning of the United Kingdom post-Brexit. That clearly is now a back burner issue. Mm. Um, and you also had a odd juxtaposition where, you know, China's economic power and influence in the world has been, you know, largely unchecked, incredible growth, uh, incredible influence. Uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, China, certainly uh, fairly or unfairly, uh, is being villainized to some degree. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch where that goes. I, I cannot imagine a scenario where China as an eco economic power does not continue. Uh, I, I think they're just, you know, too big, too strong in too many places. Um, and there's a, a spirit of incredible innovation that goes back in China's history thousands of years. In a post-COVID, post-corona era, where do you see the reintegration of China back into the world from a business and a political vantage point? And how tough a road is that going to be? So I'm going to come at it just from what I've seen, right? So um, the Chinese that I've met are incredibly hardworking people who, who really struggled for a long, long time and then started to get themselves out of it um, and started to engage in the free market economy and don't want to go back, is my opinion, right? So 
um, having uh, felt the pain um, and then then felt what I would call the freedom of really participating in the global workforce and the global kind of economy, um, I think they have no intention. I wouldn't have any intention of wanting to go back backwards, right? So, and there's a lot of them, and they are you know, they're skilled. Um, so this ability to um, kind of get back on their horse, and I really do hope um, our Chinese colleagues get back on the horse qu as quick as possible. Um, so they can continue to deliver what they, they deliver. I worry about, uh, honestly, personally, I worry about the discrimination that is going to come out of this whole COVID um, um, issue with respect to blaming China, blaming Chinese. Um, I mean, I've already seen some of it on the news with respect to the horrible treatment um, just because someone looks Chinese or whatever. And I really, really hope that we don't see the ugliness of that coming out because, you know, they're people and they've lost people just like we're people. So, uh, so, um, I just, I just, um, wish the Chinese and my Chinese colleagues specifically in, in, in Shanghai, Beijing, all around China, the very, very, very best and a very, very speedy recovery. Also, I look at them every day to see what I can learn from them or what we can learn from them because they're the ones that are going through They're you know, a couple steps ahead of us as we go through this whole COVID recovery as well. So the sooner they recover, the more hope they give us um, to recover as well. Yeah. I hope the lasting legacy of this is a, a much more clear realization that we are one world and that we yeah. are one people and the divisiveness that's become so, uh, in vogue, if you will, in our country, um, it's just a really wrong pathway on so many levels. Yeah, you know, sadly, and you could see it over and over again in the world history, you know, someone looks for someone to blame, right? And, um, and uh, I really, really hope, just like you said, we come out of this stronger and more connected to the different countries, different cultures around the world, world versus uh, deep, deeply entrenching into our own little corners, because, you know, we're not going to get any value from that whatsoever. So just last question, Lisa, you've gotten to work for some incredible people. You've had incredible people around you, above you, beneath you, to the side of you. When you look back on your career and answer any way you like, past or present, what have been some of the great minds that have really influenced you? Yeah, you know, um, uh, there's one that just, just comes to mind, um, um, right now because she just retired from IBM. So my boss, Caroline Taylor, who was um, the CMO of IBM that was responsible for all the geographies, and she really uh, lived by the adage, like, if you treat people right, great work will follow. And uh, she really focused on the wellness and of the individual. Um, and um, she, from there, she just, people just exploded in their careers because they had the confidence to do great things. And I think really it was because of her and her ability to lead. So she's the one that's uh, most uh, top of mind right now. Uh, but then I've had so many other amazing mentors. Uh, you know, I don't know if people know these names, but Maureen McGuire, uh, she was one of my mentors. Um, uh, she was uh, a senior executive at IBM then went to Sears and went to Bloomberg. She's amazing. Uh, but it's the people who really have instilled in me the whole adage that I now kind of live by is growth and comfort don't coexist, right? 
So the ones that um, kind of push me out of the nest, and that starts with my parents, right? It absolutely starts with my parents, Arnold and Shirley Gilbert. My dad was a madman on Madison Avenue in the 50s. My mother was a reporter, and um, they have basically been the ones that have said, you know, you can do anything you want, and um, don't worry about failing. If you fail, we'll be here for you. So I think that's, those, that's where it starts from. Fantastic. Well, this has been such a pleasure and you absolutely belong in the company of all the other guests <laughs> we've had had and will have on Great Minds. You are indeed a great mind. And uh, Lisa, you stay safe and we'll stay in close touch. Thank you so much. Thanks to you too. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.